Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 99 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 99, it is podcast review time. So we don't exactly have topics for this particular episode, except for all of the topics from all you know, 98 prior episodes of Inside Quizzing. So this is kind of a your your episode of review of episodes. So we started, um, it's been a, it seems like it, it doesn't seem like it's been this long, but we've actually been doing this now for three and a half years. Our very first episode, episode one, was on January 2nd, 2018. Can you believe that? Um, that seems like a really long time ago. That seems like an eternity ago, uh, three and a half years ago, but apparently that's how long we've been doing it, which is kind of neat. So we have, uh, Scott and I have selected, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six different episodes, actually not even really episodes. We've, we've selected clips from six different episodes that we are sort of dubbing those that we had I don't know if, I don't, if there are favorites maybe, or, or we had the most fun recording them, or we had the most fun thinking about the ideas, I guess. Is that probably a fair statement? Yeah. Like as I was picking stuff out, it was kind of a combo of either uniqueness or a large amount of passion or a large amount of impact. Yeah. Um, and so it could be that for one of these clips, it only has one of those things, but it has a lot of it, or it has a decent amount of all three. But it was that's kind of the um, subconscious rubric that I was using. Yeah. And so as we go through this uh, review, uh, so uh, Scott and I are going to alternate and introduce each episode and talk a little bit about the clip, and then we'll just play the clip and then continue on with the uh, with the next episode. And that's how things are going to roll. So Scott, you are up first. So our fr- by the way. Because I would always do the stats breakdowns, let's do some stats. If we've done a um, oop, 99 episodes, let me update this, um, 99 episodes since January 2nd, 2018, which means 0.07 a day, which means an average of 28.08 episodes a year. So we're just a little bit faster than every two weeks, looks like. Um, but let's go to the first clip. So the first clip is from episode 14 back on April 16th, 2018. And this was hypothetical, crazy quizzing structures and rules, some of which might be good, but most of which are probably horrible. Well, then another idea is we've uh, got this concept of third quizzer bonus that is a plus 10. And then a fourth quizzer bonus that is a plus 10 and a fifth quizzer bonus. If you sub in somebody that is an another is an additional plus 10, but really a fourth quizzer bonus is substantially more rare than a third quizzer bonus. Uh, it, it, it takes more effort, uh, than, than a third quizzer bonus and a fifth even more so. So my idea here is what if a fourth quizzer bonus is actually worth plus 20 and a fifth quizzer bonus is worth plus 30. I love this idea, Griffin. A lot of my most favorite ideas um, revolve around bonus questions. I think, um, well, bonus questions are bonuses of any sort. So in this case, third, fourth, and fifth person bonuses, I think 10, 20, and 30 as the bonus should absolutely... I'm looking right now from Great West, and there were 34 um, quizzes with a third person bonus in them. There were nine with a fourth person bonus, and there's one with a fifth person. And so I think rewarding it um, in an increasing manner is going to increase the importance of those quizzers, or not the importance, the impact of quizzers four and five getting questions in a quiz, which could create more incentive to study. Um, it would, certainly would provide more praise for them when they do get a question, and I think it's a great idea. I love this idea for exactly the same reasons. I I love seeing the four-person team, let's say, quizzing in my room, and the fourth quizzer is, let's say, a rookie, or maybe it's their second year, uh, but they're they're you know they're they've been memorizing, but they really haven't been getting questions. Uh, it's it's pretty it's a pretty rare occurrence. Uh, the usually they'll have two people getting questions. The third person occasionally does, but not all the time. And then that rare situation where the third person gets a question and then the fourth person gets a question. 
and the room explodes. And I think that's fantastic that the room explodes with, with applause and praise and, and encouragement. But I'd love to be able to see even more of that that goes back to the, the scoring. Like, like the idea of saying that if as a captain or a second chair, on a team, if I can work with my third and fourth quizzers or fifth quizzers for that matter, and I can study with them and train them and encourage them, and we can work on a strategy to say like, here's a way to ensure that or, or increase our odds of getting the fourth quizzer bonus. Uh, I, I see the the impact of that being really substantial. It, it sort of gives a leg up, I think, to, or a kickstart maybe to a quizzer who's in their rookie season and, and just kind of getting out of the gate. And it sort of sets the world up for great encouragement. At least that, that's my hope. Yeah, totally. So then uh, let's see. What was the next one here? Points for correct answers being inconsistent. Okay, so this one is definitely way out there. So the idea here is that right now, if you jump and on an interrogative and you get it correct, you get 20 points. And if you jump on a quote question, you get 20 points. And if you jump on a simple interrogative, you get 20 points. And if you jump on a really long and complicated multiple answer that spans two verses, but it's completely legitimate, but it's really hard because there's lots of like, you know, keywords in there, you get 20 points. And I'm wondering if maybe we should change that a little bit. What would it be like if, say, your standard question is still 20 points, but for a quote question, you get 30? Or if it's a particularly simple uh, interrogative question, maybe it's only worth 10. Uh, or, you know, maybe even, I don't know if I want to flex it so much as to go to 40, but maybe if it's uh, a finish these two verses or something, or uh, quote this in the next verse or something, uh, maybe it spans beyond 30 to 40. But there's kind of this interesting dynamic there. Now, of course, there's all kinds of massive implications behind this that, that, are causing me to have a headache even now. Uh, I mean, we're going to have to have the second ecumenical council of Port Orchard to sort all of this out. But the the implication being that, well, really, we should then somehow tie. Oh, maybe this is the T-shirt idea. So one of one of our ideas around scoring scoring right now is is a is a float number. It's a it's a one place float number. And uh, I think Jeremy came up with the idea, or, or at least he recited the idea a couple of times of uh, going to T-shirt sizing, where you, we would have like an easy, medium, and hard uh, level. And of course, if we do, if we are able to do that in terms of question difficulty, then we could say, well, this interrogative is easy, medium, hard. This quote question is easy and hard, and have point values associated to the difficulty there. But then, of course, it backs us into the situation of saying, well. How does that impact when you have a randomly created quiz and does that make it unfair to one team that has a chance of earning a lot more points because it's a harder quiz versus another team that is uh, not earning as many because it's it's an easier quiz. But then at the same time, you could say, well, maybe that is the way that we even it out. We have uneven question difficulty quizzes, but... Uh, if you are in a more difficult quiz, you are advantaged by getting more points for it. So yeah, I don't know. Would... How does that blow your mind there, Scott? Well, I love stats, and this kind of blows historical stats out of the water. But if you look at pretty much any major sport, there have been things that happen historically that make um, comparisons across different eras to be impossible anyway. So maybe quizzing is going to be no different. But I, I totally like the idea of different point values for questions, and you could do it in a very simple way. You score all your questions, and the hardest 10% are 30-point questions, and the easiest 10% are 10-point questions, and everything else remains a 20-point um, value. And I, I totally see the argument of, well, um, are we going to randomly generate quizzes, or every quiz has one, um, one low and one high difficulty, and the rest are medium? Um, and if it's random, what if there's three difficult ones and a team gets it and can score a ton more points than another team in a different quiz? I see all that, and I think um, even if t-shirt sizing is oversimplifying the concept, you kind of need to to make it um, implementatable, if that's implementable. Um, and I think as long as you don't go overboard with trying to um, have 
point values that change by one, like 21, 22, 23, 25, 27, um, and don't have too many t-shirt sizes. And if you think that the scoring applied kind of does reflect the difficulty of the question, then I think it all kind of does come out in the wash. You know, yeah, this this team sure did have a higher um, opportunity to score in this quiz, but on average, the difficulty was harder than in another quiz. It It reminds me of a a PNW steering committee a meeting from probably five years ago or six years ago. So every off-season, the PNW steering committee gets together for an in-person meeting for three, four hours. And what we were talking about was at PNW, we do prelims. So all of our teams have six prelims currently. And then after that, you get slotted into bracket. We have a nine-team semifinal bracket, a nine-team constellation A bracket, and then the rest of the teams are in a Constellation B bracket. And we had weights on Constellations A and B because we we were of the understanding that those the competition levels in those quizzes were easier. And so um, it's easier to get, a, say, a perfect quiz out, a 90 in that quiz, than it is in a semifinals quiz. And we wouldn't want quizzers on teams that maybe just miss semifinals and find themselves in Constellation A to actually have a lot easier of a time getting questions right and they use constellations to, to boost their averages relative to their counterparts that are in semifinals. And so we were debating, like, should the weight for constellation A be 90%? Should it be 10%? Should it be 30%? And one party of the discussion going into, well, wouldn't a quizzer feel really bad if they get a 90 and the weight is only 40%, so then they only get 36 points of their 90 points? Like, wouldn't they feel bad about that? And actually asked one of um, their own kids who quiz for seven years like how would you feel you know and the quizzer was like well i wouldn't feel very good if i got a 90 but i was only credited with 36 but then a different um one of our members of the steering committee just asked the question um do we want uh our quizzers advantaged or disadvantaged relative to each other by the bracket that they end up in and unanimously unanimously we said no we don't want them to be advantaged or disadvantaged relative to their other quizzers and then he was like okay so what we agree on that, the rest of it to calculate what the appropriate weighting is, is purely a math problem at this point. There should be no other reason, like emotional reasoning or other sorts of anecdotal logic um, put onto it. It's just a math problem. And I thought that was an incredibly insightful um, thing to find about the situation that we were discussing, you know? Uh, what was our goal? And, oh, how do we get there mathematically, you know? And I think in this case, what would be our goal from putting 10 or 30 point questions and do we think that we can get there mathematically? And I totally think that there's a way we could. Okay. And in our next clip, uh, this is from episode 24. It is from October 1st, uh, 2018. And this is where Scott and I were talking about the differing uh, roles and relationships between a quiz master, answer judge, and scorekeeper at an official's table, the different relationships that these uh, folks have, the hats that they wear, the hierarchy, the authority and the relative authority, the purposes and interactions and responsibilities of each of these uh, three officials. So I had an interesting question. It wasn't really a question. Well, it kind of was a question to me, but just point for discussion. So there's an official's table. And let's just talk about our, our fully... Um, populated officials table of quiz master, answer judge, and scorekeeper. And so they all have different roles, right? The quiz master is asking the questions. The answer judge is kind of the, the checker of everything. They're checking that questions as asked are valid. Um, they're kind of tracking what the quizzer says in case the quiz master misses a word. And then they're helping out on rulings. And if there is kind of some split decision at the officials table, the, the answer judge has the authority to make the final ruling. Um, and the responsibility, in fact. And then there's also the scorekeeper, who is keeping score, but who can can assign fouls, just like the quiz master and answer judge, and can take part in protests. And so there's a lot of responsibility given to each of the officials, um, and that responsibility is overlapping to other parts, to other um, officials at the table. And the question that I was posed is, like, let's say you're a quiz master, and an answer judge or a scorekeeper awards a foul. Usually you don't um, talk amongst yourselves before awarding a foul because fouls usually aren't super big deals. But if you're the quiz master or a different official for that matter, and you think that it really shouldn't have been awarded, do you then like very quickly say like, oh, actually we should discuss this? Um, like how quote unquote bad do you think the 
awarding of a foul is before you have that discussion. And this isn't so much of like publicly usurping the authority of another official. It's just um, you definitely want to be on the same page and you want to feel the responsibility and the ability to just make a ruling if you think it's right. But at what point do you kind of walk it back? Um, and also, like, let's say the quiz master makes a ruling and as the answer judge, you know, do you kind of jump in there? Um, I don't know. I don't know how well I conveyed this, but it's just kind of how do the three officials interact if um, a ruling or a foul has been awarded that you aren't fully on board with, you know, how do you discuss it or treat those situations? Yeah. I mean, that's a very fascinating topic. I mean, in terms of fouls, I can't remember a time where my answer judge or scorekeeper has ever awarded a foul. Um, I, I think I, I don't remember how many fouls I've awarded in, in, but in my entire time as being a quiz master, I think it's less than 10. Um, it hasn't, it hasn't been a ton. And it's been usually things like, uh, technical fouls, not anything intentional. Like, like some, somebody's light went off, uh, unintentionally before I called a question or something like that. You know, they're, they're technical fouls rather than, you know, somebody's behavioral, uh, sort of things. Uh, I, I think that's a reflection of how great our district is in terms of how great our quizzers are. And, and also the coaches, because the coaches are preparing the, the quizzers for that competition in a professional and sportsmanlike way. But I have had a situation where, uh, my answer judge has, uh, warned the teams about, or I, I guess he was an answer judge slash scorekeeper, uh, but he warned the teams, uh, of a particular, uh, behavior, basically talking amongst themselves during a question, uh, this 30 seconds of a question. He said, you guys need to not do that. If, if I see you guys doing that, I have to call a foul on it. And I really appreciated him saying that for two reasons. Um, first of all, when a question is being asked, the last place I'm looking is at the quizzers who are seated on the platform. Like my eyes don't go there. My ears don't go there. My, my entire being is focused on the question and the answer that's in front of me and listening to what the quizzer is saying and putting what they're saying or, or ref, uh, referencing what they're saying in reference to either the material that I'm looking up or the question or whatever. And so unless somebody who's sitting on the platform is, you know, really, really obnoxiously loud, I am never going to notice it ever. And so my answer judge kind of stepping up and saying, guys, you need to not talk during the 30 seconds. Uh, I really appreciate it because for two, like I said, two different reasons. Number one, I'm never going to see it anyway, even if they do it. And so I, I was very appreciative that the answer judge saw it and, and said, you guys need to stop. But then also the way that was handled was, was incredibly appropriate. Instead of just issuing a foul, uh, saying, you know, recognizing, having the discernment to recognize Yes, the talking was going on. The talking did not seem to interfere with with either the progress of the quiz, the ruling of the quiz, the scores of the quiz. So we do need to stop the talking, but we there isn't a reason to just throw out a foul like right now kind of stuff to give kind of a warning ahead of time. I thought that was handled very appropriately. Had my answer judge just thrown out a foul, I think I would have been completely okay with it. I think I would have been sad that it had to have happened. But I think he would have been in the right, and I think I would have just been like, okay, cool. Now, if he had thrown out a foul that I disagreed with, I think my reaction as a, as a quiz master, I could have just said, no, it's not a foul. We're just going to keep going. But I wouldn't have done that. I think I would have said something like, give us just a second. I, I would turn to my answer judge, privately talk about it a little bit, and then I would explain, you know, if, if we came to a consensus, then I would, I would explain, okay, well, we're, we're, we're going to rescind the foul. Here's what, here's the situation, whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Very similarly, I think from my perspective, I, as a quiz master, um, there have been more than once, um, I don't know exactly how many times, but I, it's been more than once where I've ruled on something, felt fairly confident in my ruling, and an answer judge will lean over and said, oh, she didn't say this word or something like that. And, and, and it's one of those things where in my room, I don't have a recording that I can go back to and verify. Uh, and I, you know, as I'm, as I'm, you know, especially somebody who is a key verse, uh, question specialist and is, you know, jumping on a, quote these two verses and they're very, big verses 
and she quotes them incredibly, incredibly fast. Like my eyes can't follow the words as fast as she's quoting kind of stuff. It's very easy for me to skip over a word and just be like, oh, wait, did she say that? Like, I think she said it. And my mind will fill that word in. My answer judge can lean over and say, oh, she didn't actually say that word or something like that. I very much appreciate that because then I can say like, okay, no, my answer judge is saying this. And I will defer to the judgment of the answer judge on those cases. I know that ultimately at the district level, the quiz master has the ultimate authority to make you know, make a decision, but I tend to defer a lot for, you know, quoting the stuff to the answer judge is very, very helpful. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's sort of my sort of thing. And in terms of, you know, communications, we tend to do it, uh, privately and confidentially. We, we might take a little time, a few seconds to talk to each other. Um, I like scorekeepers who are listening, even though, even if they're not ready necessarily in their, quizzing mastery necessarily to take on the role of being an answer judge. I really love to encourage scorekeepers to listen and as best they can follow along with the proceeding and then comment. I, I might turn to a, a, a scorekeeper and say, did you hear them say this or this other thing? You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's very helpful to me, even if it's a, you know, a first time person at a meet, if they're paying attention, they can offer sort of a secondary opinion. I may not necessarily put as much weight into their, their opinions about things as like a, a fully qualified answer judge, but I really appreciate having uh, somebody, somebody else's point of view that I can sort of check and balance my point of view against, uh, in, in certain very difficult calls. So anyway, that's just me, but uh, Scott, what do you think? Um, no, I, I, I agree with all your thoughts, Griffin. Um, I was just reading the rule book now and there is something that I guess I'd kind of do the opposite of, but it says that the answer judge is the spokesperson for the group and the spokesperson shall announce decisions. Um, but I kind of announce all decisions but I, I think I adhere to the spirit of it. So the answer judge can overrule the quiz master, but I don't view this as an adversarial thing. Um, and I can recall one time where the answer judge and I really did thought like that a different ruling should happen from each other. But I always announce them myself because I feel like it provides the best continuity. And if I'm in, in that one case, I didn't announce it like, well, the quiz, the answer judge disagrees with me and they have authority. So here's what the ruling is. No, like I announced it as the table's ruling because no one needs to like know what the process was. And it, it can only be a negative if you imply that there's some unresolved disagreement between officials at the table. But like when I've been a quiz master or an answer judge for a meet like Great West or internationals, I would make sure to chat with my other official and say, do you want me to verify with you before every ruling that I make? Or, you know, do we both feel comfortable kind of knowing if the correct or incorrect um, ruling is maybe in question and then we'll kind of give each other a look. But if, you know, we're convinced that it's clear, just go ahead and rule on it and just kind of set those ground rules ahead of time. Because at the end of the day, we want the best ruling to happen. doesn't matter by who. Um, and you want it to happen as quickly as possible and explained well. I want to add commentary to what Griffin is saying, but I figure we should just let the clips speak for themselves and not rehash it in our best of episode. Yeah, probably. Um, and then our next clip is from episode 34 on March 4th, 2019. And this was philosophies and rules, which Scott and Griffin disagree with the world about. And I think we did multiple episodes on um, this general topic. And did we, is this clip recapping the first two of the three episodes? Just the first two, yeah. And with that, we'll go into the first one. So the first of these three ideas is around the idea that says, well, what happens if a quizzer has memorized extremely well, has worked very hard, uh, knows the material inside and out, but gets a question incorrect based on a technicality. So one of these might be uh, somebody jumps on a fairly obscure reference question. Uh, they quote the material correctly uh, and as perfectly as possible. They, they are literally making no mistakes, but 
because they jumped a little bit early, they are unable to um, uh, get exactly the question that's on my card, let's say, or, or that, that's on Scott's card or something. Uh, and they, they have a choice of two different questions or possibly more from the reference material, and they end up selecting the incorrect question when we query for what's your question. They would, under the current rules, they would be getting that uh, question incorrect uh, based on sort of the way the world views how that should be adjudicated. But Scott had, tends to lean more toward the idea of saying, and, and jump in here, Scott, and correct me if I'm stating your position incorrectly, but generally in those contexts, if both questions can satisfy the requirements of the card, you would accept either question. Is that right? Yeah, and the way that we we being um, Canadian Midwest, Western Canada, and Pacific Northwest have done it at Great West for it was probably three or four years up until the rule changed last year was if the quizzer provides a, a reference question of the exact same type and the total information in their question and answer is is equal to the total information on the quizmaster's card, then you count them correct. And that worked great because. There are times where a quizzers gives a question that is a little bit different from what's on the card, but if the total information in the question answer is the same, it shouldn't matter. Um, and we kind of viewed those situations as times when a reference quizzer knows the whole material, jumped on a reference, was able to quote the correct verse backwards to front, identify um, usually two potential questions, and then has to pick one of them. And in that specific scenario, we didn't want to force them to pick the one that was on the card. Now, there are cases where um, one question is a chapter verse reference and one is a chapter reference. And in that scenario, the quizzer does have to pick right because they can legitimately know which one is correct. And that's a test of their knowledge of the material and especially of reference questions and being able to dif differentiate between chapter references and chapter verse references. But um, the, to the total information or the sum of information in a question and answer was... Uh, a difficult concept for a lot of people to uh, grasp, and probably probably a good reason why it's why the, the rule ended up being changed, requiring basically re requiring the quizzer to pretty much get the exact question that's on the card. Um, there's still some gray area, which in my mind means that nothing has really been solved. But um, pretty much the quizzer has to get the verbatim question on the card, which to me will be would be discouraging if I was a reference question quizzer and might lead me to pick other question types which are going to be which have always been much easier to study for but now might also be less risky to jump on yeah and i mean i i can see the counter argument to this uh the counter argument to say well you know if you're jumping on say a quote question and you pre-jump on uh, say the, the 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 syllables of the verse number, and you uh, have to make a choice between say uh, six and seven, and you pick six, and the actual answer was seven. The uh, the the result is you're wrong. You know you you pre jumped uh, even though you could have uh, you could have quoted six or seven word perfectly. Uh, it doesn't matter. You are still incorrect because you didn't get the reference correct. Um, you know, there, there are situations like that. And certainly, so, you know, taking that and applying it to the reference field, I can sort of see the argument that says, well, you know, if they're going to pre-jump or if they're going to jump at such a speed where someone can say that's a pre-jump rather than a, um, uh, you know, just an early jump. Uh, and as a result of that, get the question incorrect. Somebody could say, well, no, that's just the, the nature of quizzing. They should have given it a few extra syllables. But again, I kind of go back to, I, I agree with Scott here. I, I kind of go back to the arbitrariness of the, the way the question might be worded. There's other situations too, where, uh, you know, if I've got a question that starts with the exact same five words or exact same three words, it becomes, uh, and let's say it goes out for, say, it can read out, say, six words and still not be key enough to be a standard question so it can become a reference. Or it can be answerable enough with a reference, let's say, within three questions. Uh, what is the right question to write on the card? Do you write three, four, five, or six words? And as a quizzer, where do you stop? Uh, if you haven't gotten the whole material out. And that sort of ambiguity there just feels to me 
to be much more uh, a technicality than anything based on quizzing skill, right? So like the difference between, say, you know, jump on uh, verse 20, uh, uh, chapter 21, or quote, uh, uh, quote John chapter 21, verse, right? And somebody jumps, uh, that to me is a is a skill-based differentiator, like how you're timing the jump between the six and the seven or something and being able to read exactly where you're going to want to jump. Um, and so to me, that comes down to a, a measure of skill. And the more prepared somebody is, the better they are at, at they're going to be at being able to jump exactly where they need to be to get them the necessary material and, and still be able to uh, win the jump. But to me, some of this reference stuff that we're talking about just feels too, it feels too much like a technicality where you can do everything right and still be incorrect. Um, but I don't know, Scott, what, does that sound reasonable to call it a technicality like that? I think it does. And I think the argument, you know, like, as you said, they can do everything right and still not be correct. Well, someone might say, well, they didn't do everything right. They jumped at a point where they couldn't distinguish it yet, um, which to me is a very valid argument, right? If you jump at any point before the entire question is done of any type, you are accepting some amount of risk. Um, I just have a hard time, like, like, I mean, basically making the statement, quizzers who are going to memorize more material better than anyone else, we're going to make this more, more difficult and less appealing for you to do so. It just seems like not something we want to do. Um, I think other changes like increasing quotes and finish the verses, um, like the minimums of question types, well, that's what you're basically saying is for the verses that require word-perfect knowledge and material, we want more of them. Well, that's just going to increase memorization to a word-perfect degree, which is exactly what we want. But in this reference question scenario, you're saying, well, there's going to be some percentage that you're just going to have to accept a 50-50 risk on. Well, the only reason I memorized reference questions was because if I knew the material rock solid, my risk was zero. If now I have to accept a, a decent amount of risk on an admittedly small number of questions, it's making it strategically a less lucrative question type for me to spend time on. Yeah, totally. So years back, uh, I was telling Scott, uh, well, not years back, several minutes ago, I was telling Scott that years back in time, I had actually written up a set of uh, quizzing rules from scratch that sort of, um, they were more a thought experiment than anything, uh, you know, 16 question quizzes instead of 20, but you can go to A and B's on question one and so forth. And just kind of the, the nature of how the quizzing structure worked was very different, but it was all this thought experiment around what could we do uh, at a theoretical level that might really lend itself to a system that would even more than the system we have now encourage memorization. And one of the things that I came up with was uh, you could call it a technicalities abort switch rule where the idea would, would say essentially the, the, the abort switch is if any quizzer can quote the material word perfect with a reference, they get the question correct. Um, now this rule starts to fall apart in practice. I would think it would start to fall apart in practice at the international level where pretty much everyone who gets a reference can quote every verse word perfect, uh, or at least that's the theory. So this probably doesn't work out well there because you'd have just massive pre-jumps left and right. Uh, at, at internationals, but maybe it's fine. But certainly at a district level, I don't want to see somebody jump who knows the material, who can quote, you know, verses six and seven. Well, that's a bad example, but I don't want somebody who can jump and quote the verse word perfectly with a reference to not be able to get the answer correct because of some sort of ambiguity in the question or uh, any sort of other sort of technicality. And then our next clip comes from episode 36 on April 9th, 2019, um, where I think, yeah, April 9th. So I think this was shortly after Great West. That's right. Um, and we had Jeremy on the podcast and we went crazy nerdy trying to think of how to design a quiz that would score the worst possible score amongst all three of the teams. And the result surprised it surprised us 
by a crazy amount. Very long, very long journey uh, over several days, but uh, very worth it in the end. And in on that road trip, uh, when everybody was exhausted uh, Sunday and kind of halfway back to our destination, uh, Covington, uh, there was in the... So I, I had mentioned in the girls' van, we played uh, Encore with Cuddy and Lost. Uh, but in the guys' van, you did something uh, equally interesting, possibly even more interesting. So what did you talk about what you guys did. Yeah, so um, we have determined what the lowest possible score you could achieve, quote-unquote, achieve, in a single quiz is. And by you, I mean a team, so the, the lowest team score. And um, it was a, a van full of all of the men... <laughs> On the PNW trip, the last leg of the journey, Cuddy um, had all the guys together and all the gals together, and it was the very end of the trip, so we retired, and uh, we decided it would be a good idea to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> and uh, now, th- at first, you think that would be like a, not that difficult to figure out. It would probably be something like negative 100, 200, you know, if, if everybody just keeps jumping and everyone on your team errors. But there's a lot of loopholes <laughs> that you can exploit to uh, decrease the score further. So, uh, Scott, you might need to help me out with this. You were there. Um, and, uh, and we also had other quizzers helping us out with this. But um, essentially, to, to achieve the lowest possible score, um, which is far greater than minus 200, and we'll get there. Uh, I don't want to give away the, the ending too early. Um, but you, we have to exploit several different rules in the rulebook to get this score. So first off, um, first off is that every second overruled challenge and or protest is minus 10 points. So uh, you can challenge and or <laughs> protest every single question in a quiz, assuming that there's at least one captain or co-captain still on the bench. So every question you can get, well, except for the first question, um, you can challenge and protest and get minus 10. Um, for, so each, for each of for, them. For each, for each, yeah. So it's a total of minus 20. Um, now, so of course, this is all theoretically, you know, it's all theoretical because in, practic- in practice, a quiz master would probably literally <laughs> refuse to let a team continue if they challenged and protested, you know, the first three questions in a row or whatever. Um, but let's just say they do. Let's <laughs> let's say you've got a really, really angry c- captain and a really angry uh, coach, and they just uh, want to challenge and protest everything. Well, so that's minus 20 for literally every question. Um, another uh, rule that we can exploit uh, a lot is <laughs> this is actually the key to getting such a low score, is that you can deliberately forfeit a question and if the officials think you are doing that, they uh, what the rulebook says. You might need to help me out, Scott. Um, I'm, it I'm says, staring at it. Oh, okay, thank you. Do you want to just quote that rule for me? I will. If, in the judgment of the officials, a deliberate attempt is made to forfeit a question, an error will be charged and 10 points deducted from the team score. The next question will be numbered the same. All right, so, so here's the key. Here's the secret. Uh, by deliberately forfeiting questions, you can get an error without wasting a question um, on a toss-up for the other two teams. Of course, you cannot err on a toss-up. So if you jump on question number one and deliberately forfeit it, whatever that means doesn't really matter. It's, it's just the, chal- uh, or the officials just have to think that's what you did. So we can leave aside the question of what you would have to do for the officials to think that. Um, we can safely leave that aside. Um, and just theorize, okay, let's say you jump on question one and, and you do forfeit it. Well, you get minus 10 points and you get that magic error, which you need to get a lower score, and question one gets redone. And here's the magic, is that you can challenge and protest question one as a toss-up for the other teams. And on the toss-up, one of the other two teams can jump up and forfeit their question as well which would make one a bonus for the third team. So you can have, an, pretty much this rule lets you get an extra minus 10 on every single question that you forfeit. And it also allows there to be an A and a B question on questions 1 through 15. So that's the magic of that rule. 
All right. I've got two questions really quick. So number one, when you were calculating this, you were basically assuming that all three teams were in on this plan then rather than just one team. Like like this was a scenario where it wasn't like one team was trying to get the lowest possible and the other two teams were being rational. This is rather a scenario where all three teams were trying to make sure that one team could achieve the theoretical lowest point, right? Uh, yes. And not only the three teams, but the officials as well. Yeah, the, the officials, officials have would, to be in on it. Yeah, absolutely. The officials would have to deliver, you know, they'd have to rule that every single question, or at least the first the, the first question in the A of every uh, numbered question, they'd have to rule that it was a deliberate forfeit. And they would also have to allow the challenges in the protest, you know. Oh, true. So. <laughs> well, one could argue that they couldn't not allow it without violating the rule book. But that point aside, the other <laughs> thing is you did account for the fact that, yes, in, say, question two, um, my challenge is can be overruled. That's minus 10. My protest can be overruled. That's minus 10. But in the first question, the first jump, my challenge doesn't give me a negative 10, right? Yes. Yeah, we factored that into the math. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Good. All right. Well, please continue then. Now, yes. and another, another oh, thing sorry. is, once we get to the end, you'll the final number will be revealed, and you could you could easily calculate if the other teams were not complicit in this as well, what the total would be. You know, and it would be one third or two thirds of this grand total, which is still going to be a pretty massive and probably shocking number, even if you did not have the cooperation of two other teams. Yes, this is true. And, of course, there's a little bit, since some of these rules are not used very often, there's certainly some interpretation involved in here. So, for example, the rule that Scott quoted about forfeiting questions says um, that 10 points will be deducted and an error charged to the team. And the way that we are interpreting that rule, again, I've never seen this rule invoked in a quiz before, but the way we're interpreting it is that the error is a separate event from the minus 10 and therefore, it's actually a minus 20 when you forfeit, of course, assuming this is the second individual error or the third team error beyond. So this is actually minus 20. Um, and that's, you know, a technicality, I suppose, with the interpretation of that rule. Um, and of course, this is all for fun anyway, so it doesn't particularly matter so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, so some of this is up to interpretation. Okay, so beyond the, the forfeit rule, um, the other thing that is some people might might neglect to think about is the fact that fouls also give um, minus points. So um, each quizzer can have up to three fouls. Um, and is it the fourth team foul, Scott, uh, where it's minus 10? Yes, it is the fourth foul by anyone on the team that is negative 10, and then every subsequent foul. Right. So we obviously don't want quizzers to foul out because that means they can't err. <laughs> um, but from the fourth foul, team foul, to the 10th team foul, all of those are going to be minus 10 as well. Um, and we could just have different quizzers do it on different questions. Whoever isn't throw, you know, forfeiting a question can just get a foul if they want. Um, but we don't want any of them to foul out. So each will get two for a total of 10 team fouls. Um, uh, now, of hey. course, if, if you wanted to, you could have, once a quiz has gotten two errors, you could have them foul out if you wanted to, and it would be the same as far as the score goes. Uh, so whatever you would want to do, I suppose. What were you going to say, Scott? So be, the forfeit a question rule is key for us to be able to have all of our quizzers commit errors, um, because originally we were thinking it, we couldn't do it, because every question that you air becomes a toss-up for the other team, and that's a whole question you can't do anything on. Um, and so the forfeit rule is why all five members of the team can basically air out. Now, with fouls, we did not have have such a limitation. So theoretically, on question one, you could have one, two, three, four of your quizzers um, foul on it. And the timing of those fouls doesn't really matter, as long as none of them foul out before they've deducted the maximum possible points through other means. Right, yes. Um, okay, so I think that's the major stuff we have to talk about as far as the now, rules we're exploiting. But um, it, was a, it was about at this point when we were kind of figuring this out, and part of the fun of it was we would get through a segment, and then someone would be like, wait, what about this extra way we can lose points? <laughs> so yeah. so it, was, it was at some point in here, you know, we're talking about like question three or four and all of this stuff about deliberately forfeiting questions. 
And then someone was just like, hey, we need to show up late for this quiz. Because <laughs> then which you was start hel- with zero instead of 20. <laughs> which was hilarious because at this point, 20 points was kind of a drop in the bucket. But it was like this flash of lightning. And we're like, yes, another 20 points that we cannot have on our score. <laughs> Yeah, that was a funny realization. Um, and, of course, people st- still kept finding little things. Like, when we first realized that we could forfeit the question and have one be re-asked as a toss-up, we weren't thinking at first that that means that we can challenge and protest the, the redone question and the bonus question. <laughs> so, you know, it was just all these different ways of, of subtracting points began adding up. So, um, so basically, so we're exploiting all these rules and we're discovering by question like four or five that we're losing 90 points in every single numbered question, um, you know, because you've got minus 20 for the challenge and the protest times three. So that's minus 60. You have a, a quizzer who's getting a foul, the fourth team foul or beyond. That's another minus 10. And then you have minus 10 for the error and minus 10 for the forfeiting of the question, which we were interpreting as separate from the error itself. Um, so are we ready for the grand total, Scott? Is that, is it time? I think so. Okay. So, um, the minus the the lowest possible score that, uh, we have discovered is theoretically possible in quizzing is a whopping negative 1590 points. (laughs) (laughs) That's so awesome. (laughs) Like I, we know the maximum is 500. And so I was expecting that on the downside, you know, because it's just harder to get negative points, it's going to be like 150, maybe. And I was so far off. <laughs> Ten times that, Scott. <laughs> it was just ridiculous the way that we were theorizing the end of quiz strategy so that the the final quizzer remaining on the team is a captain who can have challenges that are going to be overruled and then go out with either an error or a foul in a blaze of glory but still leave a 20A and a 20B that the coach is going to dutifully protest and get overruled on. It was just, it was beautiful madness. Our next clip is from episode 68. It's from July 13th of 2020. And this is the beginning of, I think, probably two or three uh, episodes where we started taking umbrage with certain quizzing rules. And so this was, or actually quizzing rules, and then later we took umbrage with worst quizzing practices. But this particular clip is from episode 68 where we took umbrage with the worst quizzing rules. All right, well, let's jump into the worst quizzing rules as per Scott and Griffin's opinions, which are, of course, infallible and perfect and always correct. I'm joking, of course. We are almost always incorrect when it comes to opinions like this. That's also not true. We're somewhere in the middle. Um, So anyway, our opinions will probably differ from yours, but the following are various quizzing rules that are currently in the 20, the latest version of the CMA rulebook, the international rulebook, the 2018 version. And these are things that uh, Scott and I will take a certain amount of umbrage uh, with uh, umbrage is a beautiful word taking umbrage like we don't like it we we have a certain amount of dislike of of loathing uh, of, of of we are going to take umbrage with some of these rules but the the amount that we take of this umbrage uh, is going to be on a scale of one to ten where ten is like supreme like unrestricted umbrage of massive scales and one is kind of like well i guess it is technically umbrage but it's more like a niggly annoying thing and probably not that big of a deal but we're going to mention it anyway because we like talking about little niggling details on this podcast so with that all said uh scott's going to kick it off first with his first worst quizzing rule we're going to explain it we're going to go back and forth and so uh, scott's going to explain what is uh, his uh, worst quizzing rule is and talk a little bit about what it is and then provide his umbrage scale, the amount of umbrage, umbrage he takes regarding that rule. So Scott, kick it off. So the first one is a combination of positive and negative multiple answers and quote, if the question is not answered, end quote. So under the definition of multiple answers, it says a negative and positive answer to a question is not a valid multiple answer. 
And then under invalid questions, point 12, it says the question is invalid if the question is not answered. Example, if the question asks what is good and the answer states what is not good, the question is not answered and is tricky or misleading. So I I take umbrage with this because as far as I know, only one person from one district um, doesn't like positive and negative multiple answer questions. And the reasoning was that junior quizzers in their district have difficulties understanding them. And I think that this rule book is not for junior quizzing. It defines eligibility starting at sixth grade. So that is the intent of this rule book, sixth to 12th grade. And there are, while we don't want to make anything overly difficult so as to be a gatekeeper to younger quizzers, um, there are tons of concepts and things in the rule book that are going to be easier to understand as you get older. Um, and I've never run across someone who's like, Hey, why is this a multiple answer? I don't see two answers to this. Um, so I just, I didn't think that there was any sort of a problem and this is a very specific case and I would have less umbrage with it. If all that was added to the rule book was the line under multiple answer questions saying a negative and positive answer to a question is not a valid multiple answer. But I take more umbrage because of that addition to invalid questions if the question is not answered because it gives one example. But I think that there are many ways that this can be applied that aren't very helpful and could be confusing. Like, um, you know, saying this is not good, um, this is what not good. Well, that's obviously, you know, um, a negative, a quote negative answer. But other words like unless or an if clause or neither nor, there are many other kind of phrasings in language that imply such a negative sort of thing that we're left to wonder if that is also covered by this language if the question is not answered. And I think that's quite ambiguous. I think this is also problematic because if there is a reference question, he is not what – um, a quizzer could give he is what that is valid in every other way. It's still a, still a, a reference question of the right type and all this stuff. But because of this specific, if the question is not answered, we're going to count the quizzer incorrect. Um, and yeah, I just, I've never run across anyone that thought this was confusing at all. And, um, until I ran across one person who thought it was very confusing to lots of junior quizzers and, and it ended up being added to the rule book. So, um, I think it is not useful, but I am very curious if there are other people in other districts who have had difficulties with quizzers understanding why a positive and negative multiple answer is valid. Um, it's just not something I've I've come across. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I really don't like the whole if the question is not answered bit because of the ambiguity of how that can be interpreted uh, for exactly the reasons that you talked about. So how much umbrage do you want to take? Maybe a seven or an eight, because I think it has complications for writing questions. And I think it is um, not anything. It's just unnecessary. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, a seven or I was going to say eight, but but maybe a seven. Something like a seven or an eight for me would be the amount of umbrage I would also take on this one as well. All right. So my first one here uh, is the change to the rule book where we're talking about pronouns. It used to be not that long ago that if you stated a pronoun in your answer, a quiz master would ask you to clarify your pronoun, but it is not the case any longer. Now the quiz master must ask you to identify the pronoun. And I am not, a, this sounds very niggly and bizarre, uh, but I, I still take umbrage with this change because clarify is actually what we're asking the quizzer to do. We are not asking the, the quizzer to identify, right? It's a subtle difference, but it is an important difference, right? To clarify means to make clear or to free from ambiguity. To identify means to verify the identity of or to serve as a means of identification for, right? So the idea being that I can identify by saying he, but I clarify by saying Scott instead of he or, or clarifying he to Scott. And I know this sounds really 
like, wow, Griffin is really picking at the needles or the weeds or whatever the expression is on, on this one. So I don't take a massive amount of umbrage on this one. It's more just an annoyance for me. So I guess I would call it like a three, maybe a 3.5 of umbrage, but it is so simple. It's just one word and clarify, I think is easier. It, it just makes a lot more sense to me, but I don't know, Scott, what do you think? I do agree. Um, I do really like the change that allows us, well, not allows, it requires the quiz master to, sports, to specify the pronoun required yes. um, to be clarified or, ad- or identified. I think that's great because there have been many times where quizzer would need to clarify them and I would say clarify and there might be other pronouns present in the verse, maybe not in the answer, but also but other pronouns present in the verse that maybe the quizzer thinks that that's the one I'm supposed that they're supposed to clarify. And if they answer that one, even if it's correct, I really just have to assume they're attempting to clarify the one that I have on the card that I previously was not able to specify to them. And I would count them incorrect in that situation, which I always hated doing because I didn't know which pronoun they were attempting to clarify. And so now um, that it's I am able to tell them exactly which one or sometimes more than one, um, I think is awesome. But identify is not the word that we want here. I do think that everyone knows that that's what they're being asked. But in the same vein, one exercise I would love to do, um, and this is not my idea, it's someone else's idea, but is give the rule book to someone who knows nothing about quizzing and have them put on a quiz meet and see the kinds of ridiculousness, I mean, and I'm saying ridiculousness as perceived by us, that they come up with because they don't have all of this tribal and contextual knowledge that we do of how quizzing is supposed to work because we're in it. Um, and so me saying that whether you say identify, clarify, or any other random word you use, well, a quizzer is probably going to know like, oh, they gave me a pronoun, I should, I need to give that the specifics of that pronoun but clarify i think is the best word but my umbrage would be low i'm happy about being required as a quiz master to give the specific pronoun that i need clarified and then our last clip on our um clips show here is from episode 83 january 11th 2021 where we talked about um heresies that exist in quizzing so we defined heresy and um, kind of talked about how that's different from just having a bold take on something. Um, and we talked about heresies that exist in the realm of quizzing. And um, we wanted to cover this in the clip, but there was just not enough time in the clip for the show to talk about our uh, death to multiple answers, death to XYZs, and death to zeros. And so if you want to hear all of those, you're, you're going to have to go back and re-listen to episode 83. All right. And with that said, we'll move on to the exciting and interesting topic of quizzing heresies. So this is, you know, to be fair, this is a little bit tongue in cheek, certainly, uh, when we're talking about heretical uh, sort of notions when it comes to quizzing. We're not talking about anything uh, in terms of Christian doctrine that would be heresies or, or what we would traditionally use the word heresy for. But rather, we're talking about things in quizzing, things that we do uh, that are sort of considered traditions important to us. And when somebody uh, rejects those or tries to change them, we can, or the idea of changing those things, we say like, wow, that's, that's, that's crazy. That that's feels like a heretical content, a, a bit of content or concept there. We're, and I want to separate out the difference between something that we're calling a quizzing heresy and something that is a just a bold quizzing idea, right? There are a lot of ideas that are very bold in quizzing. So the rule book rewrite is one is a, a very bold idea, right? We're completely starting from scratch with a rule book and rewriting it uh, word for word everywhere. Uh, not word for word translating, but literally rewriting the rule book and reforming it, the functionality of it, the structure of it. Uh, it's a very bold project, but it's not a heresy uh, because rewrites of the rule book have you know, happened in the past, maybe not to the same degree or extent of what we've been doing here, but they've, they've happened, right? Um, heresies are a bit different. It's almost like if uh, you were to hear a heresy, your initial reaction would be one of sort of, I don't know, almost like an emotional negative reaction to it, kind of like, like balking at the idea uh, before thinking about it a bit. So we wanted to kind of go through some of these ideas. Uh, some of them are, are 
you know, I think Scott and I think are good. Um, there are some of these quizzing heresies that I think, actually, I'm pretty sure both Scott and I think are bad. Uh, maybe there's some of them where Scott and I will disagree about the goodness or the badness of, of some of these heresies, but let's kind of jump in. So the first one, and I think we've talked, actually, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before, uh, but it's definitely a quizzing heresy is the notion of switching from seats to push button for quizzing. So the idea of instead of having either pads or benches, we use push buttons. Uh, so you uh, sort of like Jeopardy, every quizzer would have a little push button and you push the button when you want to jump, quote unquote. And of course, we couldn't call it jump because nobody would be jumping anymore. Um, but that's the idea. And it definitely feels like heresy. Uh, there's a lot of folks, probably the vast majority of folks who feel like, you know, having seat jumping is really integral. It's a really special part of what quizzing is. And to, so to, to switch that to push button is somewhat heretical in that it sort of, uh, underpins or it, or it removes the underpinning of what a, a certain part of quizzing's uniqueness is all about. So Scott, what are your thoughts about this one? I think it would be, I think it is correctly defined as a heresy because it evokes a very emotional reaction. Um, and I think I would hazard a guess that um, more people would be against the idea of push button quizzing than would be for it. Um, but I think that there are some very, very compelling arguments. I think the logistics gains are massive. Um, I know one thing that you have said is if we were, if quizzing didn't exist and we were designing it from scratch, the chances that we pick um, some jump seat system like we have now are basically 0%. <laughs> like if we were starting fresh from nothing, there is no chance that we would choose the current system. Um, and so I think really it's just going to be the people that wouldn't want to switch would be a lot of um, nostalgia and tradition built up from their experiences. Right. And I think if the logistics weren't any factor, um, I, I'd like quizzing via jumping. I think it's, it is unique. It's not the only unique thing about quizzing and it's probably not the most unique thing about quizzing, but I would see no reason to switch if there weren't so many logistical upsides. Talk about some of the logistical upsides. I mean, there, certainly cost is one factor, but I mean, probably not the biggest factor, right? Well, so I would start with cost, right? So first off, benches are very expensive. And while I do not think it takes much time to adapt to benches from from pads, um, there are many districts or at least I don't know if there are many, but I know that there are districts and definitely church programs that do not own benches. And so whenever they do get to quiz on benches, be it at their district meets or only at a meet like Great Western Internationals or only at a meet like Internationals, some amount of um, adaptation is required, getting comfortable with it. And so that's just an advantage that a district would have who just has benches for whatever reason, right? Um, and so the the extreme cost of extreme extreme is probably too strong but like benches are expensive um, how, how and, expensive i mean what's sort of a, a if i'm going to buy a set of benches what's sort of my expected outlay um because they are heavy the transportation cost or shipping cost would be a large part of it um but i think somewhere in the neighborhood of 1500 to 2000 dollars united states for a room's worth of benches yeah versus say um, a set of pads is like what 300 500 300, 300 to 500. And then add on top, like, benches break. And so you need someone who can fix them. And especially with benches, if you can't fix them immediately, they're not, like, cheap enough to just have backups on backups. Whereas with pads, it is a little more feasible. But even with – so, like, with benches, they will fail at some point in time. And either components or the entire thing will need to be replaced. Same with pads, right? Pads and or consoles – um, will fail over time and need to be replaced. Um, equipment from quiz time will probably need to be replaced at a slower rate than Acme equipment or other equipment. Um, but there's still a rate of failure, especially on pads, because the design is the same, right? It's They're connected via wires. And even though they have protective housing, that's the most delicate part because they're moved, they're twisted, they're wrapped, they're yanked, right? Consoles probably have a much longer shelf life. Um, and so there's the cost aspect to all of it. But then there's there's more. So like with benches, 
transporting them is a big deal because one team's worth of benches, so it's four connected seats that fold up, but it's still like two feet by four feet, and I, I think they might be 60 pounds, maybe 80 pounds. I'm not really sure. And so they're not trivial. Like you can't just – if you have seven people in a minivan, you cannot fit three benches in there. Um, like maybe barely with no luggage. And so, I mean, when we host a Great West, we asked um, the two Canadian districts if they could bring benches, and they were happy to, but they would bring a bus and put the benches underneath the bus. You know, and if unless that's your your mode of transportation, you kind of need to have it figured out um, how to transport them. And so, transportation is a big deal with benches. That is not a big deal with pads, right? The boxes are small that they can pack down into. But with pads, because you don't have an integrated um, seat system, you need to have chairs. And the way pads are designed, where it's kind of – they're called pads, right? They're padded with a button in them. Any seat that has any padding on them makes it very problematic to be used with um, pads because then there's a give in the seat that makes you imprecise with when you can trigger a light. So as a result, you got to use hardtop chairs. Um, chairs that have any sort of bowl or cupping to them, um, those are also problematic when you're trying to sit on something and make sure your light is triggered and know right when you when you release it. And guess what kind of chairs you find in churches these days? It's ones that are either padded or have kind of a bowl because they're comfier. Um, and you just don't find metal folding chairs. You don't find chairs with a hard top. You don't find chairs with a flat top. Um, and so that's also um, a complicating factor. Another one with benches is how large they are when spread out. So the legs kind of, um, you pull them out at an angle. And so, boy, I don't know how how wide a single bench is. It could be eight feet, nine feet. And so three of those in a, like can limit the rooms that you pick. And we've been in churches where there's kind of, I don't know if you've seen churches where, um, at the front of the sanctuary, there's almost um, a barrier that either is between the last pew and the steps up to um, a stage, or sometimes it's part of the stage, and sometimes it goes up the sides of the stage because there's a choir well. Well, that can prevent you from putting benches at the front stage of a church um, just because of how wide they spread out. And so, like, all of those together, so there's cost, there's the fact that they will fail at some point in time, um, benches are really hard to transport, um, for pads, it's hard to find chairs, and for benches, it limits the rooms that you can use. It's just a lot of things, a lot of logistical things that you're figuring out, if, especially if you're running a meet. Um, you need to figure out if you run a church program because you have to run practices, um, and it's just – it's a lot, right? And all, almost all of those immediately go away if you use push-button quizzing. All right, and that is it for our uh, episode ninety nine uh, podcast in review. The last, well, some are, some highlights from the last three and a half years. Uh, if you heard anything in this or any of our previous episodes that you disagree with, we would very much like to hear from you. Uh, and if you don't disagree, you can email us too. We just really particularly enjoy hearing uh, from people who disagree. But either way, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, so please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And if you are uh, poking around on Slack, you can chat with us in kind and almost real time on the Inside Quizzing channel. And with all of that, I will say thank you all for listening through all of these 99 episodes. And, you know, coming up, we'll have episode 100 and probably a couple hundred more to go over the next, I don't know, three or four years. And Scott, thank you for recording this uh, podcast with me. And thanks for just being a part of it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Griffin. It's a whole lot of fun for us to record this. I think we do it because we enjoy doing it. And if it is of some further use beyond that, then that would be awesome. Um, I bet you, Griffin, we could convince you to make buttons that say something like, I wasted a bunch of time and listened to all 100 of the episodes that you can have on hand at PNW and Great West Internationals meets to give out. I could be convinced to do that. That is, that is very true. And so, again, thanks for listening, and thanks, everyone. 